0: Hey everyone, today on the Primate Cast, Dr. Julie Dubosc. Evolution.
1: Communication. Cognition. Conservation. Behavior.
0: Primatology. 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 Typically, primates. Become the monkey. Well, hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us on the Primate Cast. This is podcast number 61, and the release date is Friday, January 7th, 2022. In today's podcast, I sit down in the studio with Dr. Julie Dubosc, currently a researcher at the French National Center for Scientific Research, or the CNRS, based in the Department of Ecoanthropology at the National Museum of Natural History in Paris. Julie's been a fixture in research on the evolution of sociality and social behavior in the macaque genus. She's a long-term member of the Macaca nigra project with those mischievous selfie taking crested macaques on Sulawesi in Indonesia, but she also studied Japanese macaques over a five-year period with me here in Japan. When we recorded this interview, Julie spent a good deal of time thinking about and studying relationships between individuals within the groups and all the costs and benefits that those relationships entail. In the interview, we cover her time and research on Koshima Island in Japan, complete with various fieldwork fails that she experienced while running field experiments with the macaques. Julie shares some of her research linking social networks with the transmission, uh, or not, as we'll come to see, of infectious agents. And we also get to talking about her transition later to a permanent position in France, which was her biggest news at the time, Uh, and she shares some tips and encouragement for others at that stage. We close the interview by touching upon the concept of open science and the philosophy around transparency and collaboration in research and publishing, something that I myself feel very strongly about. Now, this podcast was actually recorded a long time ago in June 2018, just as her second fellowship from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science was ending, and she was heading off to her current gig. Since the podcast is a little out of date, I'll have to push her uh, for an updated interview to see what she's done with the things she discussed here that were noted as being in progress. But Julie is someone I admire greatly. Uh, We share a fascination with the process of science, and we care a lot about the hows of the process, and not only the what-fors and the so-whats. So she's someone I feel I work really well with, um, and I think, or at least I hope that's reciprocated, but I hope that this aspect of our relationship also comes through in the interview. So I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Julie Dubosque. It's weird, I think this is gonna be the weirdest podcast because <laughs> I, I don't feel like there's anything left to uncover that we haven't already uncovered. And then it's hard not to, like it's just <laughs> totally artificial. But uh, I, did a, I did an interview with Mike and that was weird too, but uh, okay. it worked out pretty well in the end, I think. Mm-hmm. I think um, so we'll just have to see how it goes. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I can do it in any particular order so I'm just gonna start throwing things out at you. Sure. <laughs> um, well, no, that's not true. It will go in a particular order. So in you you first arrived here in 2013. Uh yeah. would have been around Sept was it September?
2: October. October yeah, middle somewhere of around October. There. Yeah.
0: And you quickly were shipped off to Koshima.
2: Yeah, within a couple of days, I think.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you've been around a little bit before that, so uh, seeing kind of different field sites and you'd been in primatology for quite some time and and even managed field sites and things like that. But what, I don't know if you had any kind of expectations of what it was going to be like to come to Japan at that time and uh, conduct field work here. There's still, I think, not that many people who've actually come and established themselves from outside of Japan as as you kind of have Mm. and conducted field work for that long of a time, but... Yeah, what was the thought process before coming here and what were your kind of expectations?
2: Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> a tough question. I know it uh, is. <laughs> um, no, I can tell you what I didn't expect, actually. Yeah, okay, let's start with that. <laughs> so I didn't really expect that it would be um, kind of... Difficult and easy at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's easy because it's very well organized, it's well managed, there's a, um, a hard building as a field station. Uh, you don't have to worry about much of anything. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because in Koshima the conditions are very special. <laughs> like you need to get a boat (laughs) to go to an island that is literally like 300 meters from the coast, (laughs) which you have the feeling you can just walk or swim Mm -hmm. to. And and then it looks easy observing the monkeys because they're provisioned. So they gather in one place, so Mm -hmm. you find them easily. But the island is a bit uh, rugged, Mm -hmm. so it's when they are not on That beach where they are provisioned, and it's kind of difficult to follow and keep track of where the group goes and what they do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, and I had heard people saying that Koshima is really the hardest field site in Japan. It uh, cannot be. I mean, but in a way, maybe. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: but I was like, I was like, uh, it was probably the same when we first went, but uh, I always liked. So even though it, it does sound a bit ridiculous that you have to, you have to hire a boat and it's not cheap. It's in Japan uh, every day basically to go. But that moment when you you're on the boat literally for like 30 seconds, and you come around the corner into this little bay and then suddenly all the monkeys are calling and it's one of the most exciting yeah. also things, right? So you, you went back a bunch of times, but yeah. I imagine that feeling still the first time when you re-greet the monkeys is, is, yeah. is so
2: yeah, pretty Yeah, I was Yeah. And I, I distinctly remember you as a, like this very first time <laughs> was like, so now open your eyes and yeah, your right. ears, like, oh, yeah. wow. And yeah, yeah, it's a very special feeling.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool place did you did you so i mean obviously um it is pretty well known in primatology as the birthplace of, of japanese primatology mm-hmm. but did you have any was that kind of a thing before you arrived there or was it really just kind of no 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 you
2: know, it was, really it, historical, was a, it was a thing yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and i also remember being impressed in a way by the sign mm. here as well at PI, like this is Kyoto University Primate Research Institute. It's right. the birthplace of modern and Japanese primatology. Mm. And arriving in Koshima was also a kind of, um, yeah. Uh, swimming with the giants or something—I don't know what could be the appropriate expression here. Well, but... I think
0: uh, here we we often hear from Professor Matsuzawa and others about the spiritual ancestors, mm. so Kinji Manishi being the main ones, yeah. and then his uh, students at the time. So I think they put a lot of effort into maintaining that uh, that culture and that storytelling aspect mm-hmm. of it. So so the the prominence of the historical uh, kind of significance of it is always yeah it's always there i think
2: yeah uh, and it's true eat. that you come here with that in mind mm-hmm. and then you feel it too in a way yeah mm-hmm. it's very true
1: mm-hmm.
0: and but the, the monkeys there didn't actually always treat you that well <laughs> in terms of the project that we started yeah so i remember one of my favorite moments uh I mean, there's a couple of stories, but one of my favorite moments with you is when I think it was at the, the IPS Congress in Vietnam, uh, you were presenting your talk, and it's like, okay, here's a Japanese macaque social network and right <laughs> next to it. And it looks obviously complex, and there's a lot of uh, links between individuals, you know, various centrality, and then the plot right next to it. And here is a transmission network with absolutely no lines between individuals. So <laughs> what were we trying to do in that, in that scenario?
2: So, um, you mean that as a general research question? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, just give the background behind that. Yeah, so. um, Result, the famous result.
2: So, we were uh, interested in the um, transmission of parasites within a network, a Mm -hmm. social network. And um, I had kind of Design pseudo ectoparasites um, that I tried to stick on the monkey's hair. So, are I, different colors for different individuals.
0: If I don't stop you right there, the people listening are going to be like, What is going <laughs> off about? Pseudo ectoparasites.
2: <laughs> Little grains of rice uh, covered in glue. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to mimic uh, an item that they would catch when they get in contact mm-hmm. with each other, mm-hmm. uh, like a real ectopylite maybe, Um, and I wanted to track the diffusion of um, those little sticky things Mm -hmm. across the network. But yeah, it was challenging first to set up on the monkeys (laughs) that didn't really like it, and and then it just didn't transfer. Yeah. So, yeah, we had a complex Grooming network or contact network and then <clears throat> no transmission event. <laughs> <laughs> we also had a very complex way
0: of creating those little sticky things. So I think we started with wood chips in the beginning. Yeah. Trying yeah, to yeah, cut yeah. little pieces of wood on some yeah. some boards and then painting them all different colours. Yeah. And then yeah. handball wax, I believe, was the Yes,
2: yes, handball wax. Adhesive. True. True. And it was sticking as much on my fingers than it was sticking <laughs> right. on the monkey's hair. So, And
0: then you have a question of how to distribute them across the monkeys So uh, attaching them to little branches and trying to... <laughs> not that we would condone poking monkeys with sticks, but um, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of an adventurous little study going yeah, on.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, I tried different uh, substrate as well. I remember trying a, a powder, a color powder mm-hmm. as well. And... Um, but it was also quite challenging to put on the monkeys and then it was a, also a fail because the individuals that were coming to groom that colored female mm-hmm. didn't really like to see her hair colored. So <laughs> they would like, oh yeah, no, I'm not touching that. So. <laughs> Well, no transfer, no. But transmission. maybe that's
0: maybe yeah. that's partly a reaction that you would expect to see if it were some kind of a, a transmissible infection. Yeah, as well.
2: no, it's true. It's very true. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but at the same time, you were also trying to track something else spreading through a network. Yeah. Along with the pseudoactin Yeah, Yeah,
2: yeah. So the the project was a more uh, general project. Um, Uh, to look at transmission of information and of parasites and see whether there's a trade offs in place to uh, increase information transmission and um, prevent or decrease um, parasite transmission. Mm -hmm. And so um, at the time, the standard way of looking at information transmission was to use those uh, artificial fruit where it's a little box and... There's a, some food inside and then it can be open maybe two or three ways. Mm-hmm. And so we set up that, we went into this paradigm as well. We uh, designed really technical boxes where <laughs> they, <laughs> they had to push a button and then it would release the lock mechanism of the door and then this door would be open and Two ways, and there was remote control. I, it was a technical. It was incredible achievement, I think. Yeah, it was incredible.
0: And before you get to the punchline of that, like what? I mean, when designing, a so you were designing this with engineers at uh, Strasbourg University yeah. as well. And so, like, what kind of thought process was going in to allow you guys to construct these boxes and you were thinking about the monkeys using them?
2: So, we wanted something. Um, not too simple and not too difficult either for them Mm -hmm. and having a simple door with a simple opening, um, what we thought it would be too easy. Mm -hmm. So we added, they have to press a button first, um, a two step process. But then Macax being Macax, uh, you need pretty sturdy (laughs) equipment. so that they don't destroy everything. Mm. And and then I wanted it to be remote control because ultimately we wanted to do diffusion experiments where we would provide those boxes to the rest of the group, not only to the individuals that acquired a certain technique. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to set up, um, who could approach the box when I was training, but also, um, releasing. All the mechanism at once when it was time for our diffusion experiment. Mm-hmm. So we had to rack our brains on how to do that
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, with those boxes.
0: And so, from one kind of—I harp on this—we'll come back to it later. But from one fieldwork failed to another, <laughs> <laughs> to drop it in there. What I mean? What did the when we when when we're watching those mechanics? It seems like they should not have any kind of issue solving this task oh. and then the research just carries on as we totally expected but it didn't work out that way
2: no no it didn't um the kushima macaques st- uh, struck again <laughs> so to speak. and uh so one individual i trained was quite fast at understanding the task and she mastered it quite quickly but the others not at all mm mm-hmm and I, And I wanted several demonstrators. Mm-hmm. That was the key point. So the group would be uh, able to uh, watch several techniques. Mm-hmm. but yeah, so the training took too long, I think, and I'm not even sure the individuals would have learned ultimately even at the uh, extensive training mm-hmm. so we couldn't reach this the the stage of Carrying diffusion experiments.
0: So, what do you think was because we know that I mean these kinds of experiments have been done, uh, you know, with other groups of wild groups as well, other species of monkeys. Yeah. Uh, so, what do you think is the the real limiting factor, or maybe that's something that was different about about this particular apparatus, maybe, or like what would we do better in the
2: future? Um, I think maybe actually the task was ultimately too complex. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other experiments that other researchers did, they, they stuck to that, um, simple opening somehow. So um, we could, um, go back to that simpler, those simpler techniques. And, but other avenues are actually uh, also playing with, um, what, um, what other researchers then came to do in Koshima as well um, was color food mm-hmm. and um, color items mm-hmm. or um, places to go and fetch food, different places at different times. Mm-hmm. Uh, other kind of um, situations where the uh, monkeys have to learn through observing mm-hmm. another individual mm-hmm. that has the knowledge. Mm-hmm. There would be some options in the future.
0: Okay. So one of the things I learned about you is uh, incredible resilience in the field and, <laughs> and ingenuity and and almost never give up. But at some point, we had to kind of give up uh, this, this specific thing. But then uh, something really interesting also came out of it based on the observations and thinking about networks and transmission. And so maybe you want to talk a little bit about nitpicking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something that I, you know people accuse me of doing quite a lot but
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah nitpicking um it was it was funny because uh, actually i think you started collecting some uh data on mm-hmm. that so um where the monkeys when they groom they are very uh laborious in their task and they really look through the hair mm-hmm. that they're grooming and then at some point they find an item and they grab it and they eat it mm-hmm. and it's a very um, stereotypical gesture somehow mm-hmm. and um, yeah, remember that you you started somehow uh, recording those behavior, maybe not so systematically. so I thought it was really interesting because yes, we were also talking about transmitting ecto or pseudo ectopites right. And so I used uh, to observe those gestures during grooming and to count them actually to count their frequency mm-hmm. during grooming, and and we knew also from previous research in the eighties from Japanese researchers that those knit picking gestures were really picking knits. <laughs> yes, exactly, quite, quite literally. <laughs> quite literally, yeah, loves eggs. So um, it was a way of estimating the uh, lice load of mm-hmm. the monkeys. And so ultimately, yes, all our fancy experiments failed, <laughs> but <laughs> it gave us the chance to uh, use that behavior and to actually look at um, network and transmission of lice and or risk of being infested with lice. Mm. And that led to an actual paper. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it, it, all in all, not too bad. Yeah,
0: it turned out to be quite good, and I think that one got some some media coverage too. And some of it was quite good, but some of it was also quite uh, dodgy in the sense. Wasn't there one about? I feel like it was something about mate, like f- about decisions for mating based yes. on. Viewing, uh, <laughs> removing lice for sex or something like that. yeah yeah there was yeah
2: some bad coverage where uh, yeah obviously the research wasn't understood (laughs) all part of the fun yeah but yeah
0: and so you've managed to uh, putting the koshima stuff aside uh, after that you've managed to stick around for quite a long time so five years now uh, with a couple of japanese government postdocs as well Mm -hmm. and, and those projects were also kind of taking in similar ideas that we, we'd been developing over the previous years on uh, trying to track infection in social networks, and uh, but this time you had a focus maybe on on well, I should say it was also on Koshima. <laughs> here <laughs> yeah. comes another fieldwork fail. Uh, spoiler <laughs> alert. But uh, ultimately, ending up doing some work here at PRI, so maybe you could walk us through that one.
2: Yeah. So. Um... I guess until recently, uh, I I maybe didn't put everything together, but uh, now, on hindsight, maybe uh, I managed to do that. It's when when we looked before at uh, the link between um, social network and transmission, it we didn't actually we didn't really tackle transmission. We tackled. A state of the individual, its parasite load, for example, with a state, uh, its social state, its position in the network. So this is all very static and correlational as well. Mm-hmm. We can't really say this network position leads to this parasite load or the other way around. And so I, uh, talking with you a bit more uh, about all this link between network and transmission um i think we wanted to be able to disentangle that relationship a Mm -hmm. bit more in details and um we um also well because research is collaborative of course or talking with other researchers and uh, asking those questions um Mm -hmm. with colleagues with started thinking that exploiting the parasite or pathogen diversity as well as the host diversity would uh, get us closer to investigating the link uh, between cause and consequence of behavior and infection. Mm -hmm. And so we elaborated a project on uh, including viruses and bacteria where yeah there's enough genetic diversity to draw individual profiles actually so individuals can express different strains and if we can track the somehow transmission of those different strains uh, together with the social network then we can maybe infer transmission events and who transmit what to whom Mm -hmm. more directly Mm And yeah, that's what we wanted to try. And do with the Kashima macaques, as a feedback phase that you mentioned, it was also a bit surprising to me because I had colleagues uh, uh, doing those experiments successfully. And so um, the virus we chose uh, to study, the semen forming virus, is transmitted by saliva. Uh, and so we needed to collect saliva. And there's good. Uh, Research now that use uh, cotton ropes and apparatus containing cotton ropes to collect saliva non-invasively from uh, wild monkeys and seem to work pretty well, mm-hmm. uh, but in Kushima, not so much. <laughs> 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 Although I have to say, when I mean, this was the 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 first GSPS project, so it was only one year, yeah, and so if I had been spending more time in the field trying stuff out than maybe would have been out Mm -hmm. but i was a bit time constrained too Mm -hmm. and so because we also wanted to look at uh, at this study as a proof of concept maybe to really see whether we can actually find this virus and find diversity in this virus and match it to social behavior then doing experiments here um with the social group in captivity at PR, it was ultimately the best solution for that project.
0: So before. what was that experience like? I mean, it was probably the first time that you were got that involved with the captive animals and specifically in the context of the annual <laughs> veterinary, uh, I don't want to say inspections, but health evaluations that they do where they uh, are knocking down monkeys en masse, basically. But uh, yeah. So what was that transition like going from Koshima to to swabbing animals directly during these health health checks.
2: Yeah, that was also. Uh, I mean, I have to say, we, we sometimes kind of idealize field work. Mm-hmm. It is hard work, and we spend many, many, many hours following the monkeys. And but um, being involved here in that procedure, where yeah, they they put to sleep a whole uh, an entire group at once, then they collect biological samples, and then they release the monkeys in their mm-hmm. in their enclosure all at once as well. It's a massive undertaking. <laughs> it's really, it has to be really um, like down to the second of tasks people have to do. It's very well organized. And we could sample like 60 or 70 monkeys in two hours. Mm-hmm. It's, it's It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So that was also interesting to see, and we would, we got really good quality samples. So I think it's it's part of research, as I Yeah,
1: um, yeah.
0: So I know that this project is still kind of ongoing and there's not a whole lot to say about what, to, but what, what are the kind of prospects with the data that, you, that you're able to collect and, and, and start to analyze?
2: Yeah, so um, from the saliva of the monkeys, uh, we could uh, extract the simian foamy virus. Um, and um, so far it doesn't seem that there's a lot of diversity uh, in, in different strains most of the individuals of one group that I analysed at least um, they seem to show the same genetic sequences of that um, particular virus but there, there is some diversity that is expressed so mm-hmm. I hope we can uh, exploit that variation between individuals uh, I hope we can also try to see whether there's variation within individuals So individuals carrying multiple strains, it's been shown in chimpanzees uh, donkey and macaques as well I think mm-hmm. and if we can really characterize that diversity then, uh, because I also collected observation uh, behavioral observation of those same groups we can match it to behavior and see whether we can infer transmission and yeah that's still ongoing but
0: <laughs> so what's kind of the end game do you think for you uh, for yourself and then just maybe more generally about this kind of you know this kind of research is, is picking up and mm. the diversity of organisms that are being investigated and techniques being used is you know is is progressing as well and uh i assume so we're going to keep working together on this but then mm. You know, you, you might have some other things on the horizon as well. But so what do you think is the kind of, yeah, we're we working towards on that one <laughs> in an ultimate sense. I mean, oh, oh, one of the other interesting things for me is that it's if that relationship or that proof of concept that you talked about is, is it holds, then it's also possible to infer the behavioral networks from the pathogen genetics or from, the you know, the viral parasite genetics. whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is so also quite interesting.
2: It is quite interesting, and it's, that's one perspective that um, we had put in the grants. But I think it could be useful indeed to um, infer um, connectivity, mm-hmm. not only between individuals, but maybe between populations of mm-hmm. animals, mm-hmm. uh, without necessarily spending years in the field to habituate the groups and collect behavioral data. So if we can infer connections uh, between individuals or between populations through um, harvesting feces and (laughs) analyzing (laughs) pathogen genetics, then I think it's a big step as well for ecology and conservation. Um, I could um, help. Uh, some studies in ecology and. Yeah.
0: Okay, very cool. So j- mm, kind of stepping away from the, 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 the kind of science you've been doing what, since you were here, uh, now is the part where I get to congratulate you on the air for the <laughs> new position coming up with the CNRS in, in Paris. But uh, I also want to so know a little bit more about this process because we've had a lot of we actually have a lot of French researchers, students that come through PRI postdocs and also visiting scientists and it seems like for early career scientists coming out of france and maybe want to go back to france there is a very specific holy grail
1: and that (laughs) is
0: finding a way into the crs (laughs) So, (laughs) so what's the story here and how did that work out for you so well
2: um well, part of it is luck, I think. <laughs> no, 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 we don't deal with luck here. It's a science. <laughs> and no, seriously, I think I also was at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, and But part of it is um, making connections with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not working directly with people, at least um, engaging with people and, um, yeah, talking science with people. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was, I, although I was here and, um, it was really Japanese grand Japanese institution, Japanese research, uh, I kept my connections with friends and I started being more involved a little bit in French. Uh, research mm-hmm. um, with French people so going to the, the meeting of the, the animal behavior society for example in France and um, just talking to people
0: you're even writing French language articles in yes. the last couple of years as well
2: exactly so book chapters and um, recently a, um, a book for yeah, university students as well. mm-hmm. uh, I think that's one important part and um, but mostly it's also putting yourself out. Uh, I mean, the CNRS application process is, is, can be daunting, but it's, it's allowed me actually to take a step back and reflect on what I really wanted to do mm-hmm. as research and, and putting a, together a research project that is supposed to be reflecting, so not only your immediate interests within the next two or three years, but probably what you want to do in the next 10 years Mm -hmm. is an interesting, yet really (laughs) difficult exercise. (laughs) (laughs) But those kind of really big applications for permanent positions allow you to do that. And that has been really, really helpful for me Mm -hmm. to put myself in that situation.
0: And then you'll be joining... So at the museum in Paris, you'll be joining our good friend who's often in Japan as well, Cecile Garcia.
2: Yes, yes. (laughs)
0: So that's going to be... Yeah, double the pleasure for me when I come and visit Paris.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Having all your friends in the same place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely
0: makes it easier. Friends and and good colleagues.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: Okay, so the last thing I want to ask you about, because I think this is... It's kind of important. I, I mentioned... So over these five years that we've been working together, which has been fantastic, uh, not only have I learned a lot about your persistence and uh, a- a ingenuity, creativity, and, and uh, hard work on these projects that you've been running, but also we've talked a lot about kind of science and in some ways philosophy of science. And you have a very specific philosophy about open science. And uh, I think that's worth talking about. It's something maybe mm. that not everyone is is it's not on everybody's radar but uh it's something as simple as you know how you approach review processes or uh, engage in 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 that that kind of um i don't want to call it underground it's very relevant and very Mm. uh, in everyone's face in science but uh maybe you just want to talk about where that came from so specifically i'll just start with the simple one which is signing reviews yeah
2: yeah so it's been um, several years now that uh, I, I, I systematically systematically sign my reviews. Um, and it's not because I want the credit for it. Yeah. It's because it's more transparent and it can start discussions, direct discussions as well between people. And where it came from, um, I think I was a bit taken aback when I started my PhD to see how much competition there was Mm -hmm. between scientists. And that some scientists were so cautious that they wouldn't even talk about their current research. Right. And that they wouldn't present a study at a conference if it wasn't published. Mm. And that was kind of scratching me against my um, yeah, my view of research, uh, maybe it was a naive view, but for me, research is collaborative, and we can openly talk about what we are working on, what are our ideas, and we shouldn't be afraid of it most of all.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, little by little, so it was a pr- uh, a process as well, a gradual change. But I started, yeah, signing my reviews and then trying to um publish open access as Mm -hmm. well although it's not given to everybody because now although every journal might do open access it's very expensive so um maybe there's some the system needs to be improved here as well Uh, and there are some new interesting journals that are actually supported by uh, scientific societies or institutions where it allow us to reduce fees for open access, but I think that's also very important so that um, anybody can access research and be able to discuss it too. Uh, So that could mean pre-registering studies, it could mean opening um, post-publication reviews as well. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's Even as early career researchers, even if we don't have a permanent position, uh, we shouldn't be afraid of that. I think. Yeah, people were also telling me that it's maybe putting early career scientists at risk for their career, especially yeah because they are not settled and so it might come back and bite them. But I think it's a mistake to think that way.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess you haven't had any experiences that like that. No, yeah. no,
2: yeah. not at
0: all. And so. there you go at CNRS. So <laughs> 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 now,
2: now that I got a permanent position, then yeah, I'm gonna try to push. Yeah. So that's where I wanted to go
0: forward. next. Is what? Do you have anything in mind for for the future for this and and, and how do you think CNRS also? Uh, do they have any policies or anything that that are progressive in this kind of sense or
2: So I think in general the European Union scientific mm-hmm. policies are pushing for more transparency and more open access and so they also then provide more funding mm-hmm. for that but I think it's even like changing the way people think and showing students, for example, that it's not because we don't publish in very high-ranking journals behind paywalls that we don't succeed. Mm -hmm. I think you and I are the perfect example. (laughs) You know, we kind of, I don't know if we disregarded on purpose, high impact factor journals, but we have a decent record, uh, although whenever I went for um I don't know high competition journals mm-hmm. and it works so
0: i mean there's always an appropriate outlet i think that doesn't require you to necessarily sell your soul or yeah <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's just someone who, who who's had some uh, rejections <laughs> something you say. but uh...
2: And it's if not it, about demeaning, high-impact course. High impact of course, of course yeah. it's, it's not at all that, it's just...
0: But it, it, it is right, it's a skewed sense of competition that you get when people yeah. believe that they need to do that in order to have success.
2: Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I want to work towards uh, dismantling that urban myth. Good. All right then, I'll
0: be in your corner. Good. So thank you uh, for five years thank good you science. so much
2: yeah, I think I was serious when I was saying that nothing would have been possible without you and your support and That's,
0: she's talking about the primate <laughs> cast the model, very clearly the primate cast no no, no Andrew specifically <laughs> <laughs> okay. well it, was a of, it has been a pleasure working with you and it, it, will be it to is. continue to <laughs> yeah 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 no was in that sentence you have been listening to the primate cast a podcast series dedicated to all things primatology and wildlife research to the conservation of species and to the dissemination of scientific knowledge the podcast is brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at the Kyoto University Primate Research Institute. Visit us online at theprimatecast.com
1: and follow our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter at theprimatecast.